From tellmeyourdreams.com, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between finding work that pays the bills and making our work meaningful. The show lives where our personal and professional lives collide, giving all of us the chance to rethink how we live and labor in a work-from-everywhere economy. In a work-from-everywhere culture, being on a remote team is no longer news. But for many, what is new is having to deal with dynamics at work that are unfamiliar. Things like, how do you talk with your coworkers or your boss when you don't feel psychologically safe? Or how do you deal with old experiences like drama or trauma when they start getting in the way of your work? Or what do you do when you need emotional support at work, but most of your work is done all by yourself? Andy Maurer is an emotional wellness coach for leaders. He's also a licensed therapist specializing in leadership, trauma, and emotional health. And he's my guest on today's episode of Converge. Andy works with high-performance leaders, including CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs, influencers, really anyone who's uh, interested in pursuing wholeness and healing in their relationships with themselves, others, and their work. This is particularly relevant in contexts where proactive mental health is something that you're looking to have happen. After years of working with leaders, Andy understands that any leader can change the world, but only whole and emotionally healthy leaders are empowered to change it for the better. If that's the kind of leader you want to be and you want to be that for your people, today's conversation is for you. Andy Maurer, welcome to Converge. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. I am so excited for this conversation on so many levels. We have been talking about having this conversation for months and months and months. And uh, the reason I'm so excited is because I know our listeners are well, candidly, they're suffering, <laughs> whether they know it or not. They're carrying a lot of burden and weight yep. when it comes to mental health in the workplace. And whether it's uh, folks running their own business and the stresses of as kind of being a solopreneur or people are leveraging their skills for other people's businesses as freelancers, it's amazing to me how much burden people are carrying. But before we get to all that, folks already know that you and I met at uh, the Engage Summit and have a common interest and care around freelancers and entrepreneurs, but you have a unique background in that you come as into this conversation as a mental health professional, but yet you have a, a compassion and a care specifically for people in business. So talk a little yeah. bit about your background. Well, when I first got into therapy, I remember applying for my graduate programs and they asked me what my vision was as I went through um, my graduate programs for marriage and family therapy and therapy. And I told them, I said, there are a lot of therapists who are very content being in the office 20, 30 hours a week seeing clients for the rest of their career. What I wanted to do is I wanted to enter into the clinical space to gather skills to then take them out of the clinical space and into business and into leadership and into entrepreneurs because I saw the limited amount of resources that were available for some of those individuals. And rather than them just having to go to therapy, I wanted to bring it to them in their own space, in their own way. So I was originally kind of moving through this process and early on, I I had to pick a specialty. And one of my specialties that I chose was the issue of trauma and abuse. Mm. Now, 
why anyone picks that topic <laughs> is because that's part of my personal story. And I think we frequently create things. Sometimes we create the best things because our why is directly tied to those things. And my uh, story is directly tied to why I feel like both entrepreneurs and leaders and just people need to have conversations around some of these deeper issues on mental health and trauma. So I, I focused on that and I learned what I could. And now I'm kind of transitioning a lot more out of the clinical space and into business. That's great. And your and, and charity, talk, talk a little about, yeah, you also have a, a significant other who is indeed navigating this as a as a professional service provider and creative. Talk about that too. Well, she's phenomenal. I mean, to and, where and, she, I, and she and by she, by the way, friends, she is she is um, Andy's wife. So keep going. Yes, <laughs> yes. Charity Maurer is my wife. She was in the luxury wedding market for about eight years, and she recently, over the last couple of months, has retired from that position and has really joined forces with me around some of these issues of creating emotional wellness for freelancers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. Um, so she's really working on my my end around marketing and design and strategy. Um, she's a genius when it comes to those things. So we're excited to build something and grow something together. Yeah. And she also, when she was in that role running her own business, she could see firsthand both as someone who felt the pressures of carrying that the weight of running that and also having colleagues uh, in various disciplines that she also witnessed as well. Oh, yeah. So she can speak directly to that. Yeah. And I saw that firsthand. Yeah. So talk. give me an example of how you saw it firsthand. Well, so one of the things that I see, at least in the creative space, is and you know this, Dane, there's this image that you have to put out and that's part of your brand. Everybody, Everybody's business is themselves. It is their brand. And when we display ourselves through social media or through networking events a certain way and we struggle with mental health issues on the inside but we're not willing to share, that gap there between those two things, the further that gap is – the more people will begin to lose touch with themselves and begin to develop rates of depression and anxiety and burnout. So the what I saw kind of in this industry is this high need to have this image represented that looks polished mm. and not a lot of spaces to be able to discuss some of the deeper realities of fear, which I think drives creatives on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. I think creatives are either running from something or they're running to something. But both of those processes are driven by fear. Hmm. So that's fascinating. So as someone who has been a professional creative for a long time, I'm asking myself the question, okay, gosh, what have I been running from and to? Uh, that, that feels pretty vulnerable to ask that question, which tells me that there's some truth to what you're saying. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and in my own life, a lot of my listeners know that I've had some trauma in my life. Uh, you know, my father died when I was three. My dad's dad died when my dad was three. Uh, and other things, but that's probably the kind of tip of the spear that I'm conscious of. And I, I have definitely been accused of wanting to prove something mm. to some mythical kind of person, maybe my dad or God or something. And these are close friends who've kind of shared that with me. Is that the kind of thing that you mean? Like a, an event that's happened historically that is unconsciously driving me to perform? I think so. I mean... There's a Harvard professor, and he was looking at marketing and purchasing behaviors. And one of the 
kind of the landmark findings that he came up with was 95% of our behavior and our decisions is subconscious. And that's a, that's a huge portion. So the way we run our business, the way we do life and the way we do the creative process, it's not typically logical and it's not typically rational. It's driven by all these subconscious forces. Mm. And one of the things that drives that is our story. So I define story as a combination of events, memories, thoughts, feelings, and relationships from when we are in our mother's womb until now. Hmm. A combination of all of those different things. And there are parts of our stories that we choose to, or we subconsciously choose to push aside because they're either uncomfortable or painful or just so overwhelming that we can't deal with them in that moment, which is something that we need to do at different seasons. But when we when we do that our whole life, it bleeds out in some of these other ways around mental health and depression and anxiety. So I think one of the things that people run from is just the parts of their story that feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. and scary. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things when I sit down with people is they resist looking back or going inside because they're terrified of what they'll find. Mm. They they know it's there, but they don't quite know what's there, and they're terrified to look at it. Yeah, and I got to believe that's that's true not only of the the independent creative trying to make it in this world, but also folks who are working at companies or just in general that there's this like you said, this notion of my life is on display. I am a personal brand. And uh, whether I'm trying to get a job or I'm trying to win a client, I have this pressure to put that polished vision of myself out there. And there's an incentive almost for me to not be vulnerable with those things. And then on top of that, it seems like it's exacerbated because there's not a lot of space to be vulnerable. Like there's not a lot of context in our culture unless I go to therapy to or like find a spiritual director or go to a faith community or something like that, where it's kind of culturally appropriate to talk through that sort of thing. Is, mm-hmm. is, that, is that fair to say? Yeah, the workspace is not set up to deal with people's emotional problems. It's just not. What's kind of fascinating is there's actually been quite a bit of research done around this. And a concept that's used a lot is this term psychological safety. And, and what's fascinating is if you've heard of this this story called Project Aristotle that Google put on. So they they did this two-year kind of landmark study looking at what creates fantastic, effective, productive, cohesive teams. And they spent hours and hours and time and gathered the best professionals together to look at some of the data and they couldn't figure it out over over months and months and months they kept getting confused because there wasn't consensus on anything until they brought in a bunch of organizational psychologists who looked at this data from a psychological perspective and what they found was the number one thing that drove success in teams both cohesion and productivity was this term psychological safety and all that is is that team members feel safe to take risks and to be vulnerable in front of one another Mm. so we're getting a lot more research around some of these issues and and it doesn't mean that the workplace has to be nice Uh, i think that's one of the misconceptions is that we have to be nice it's it's that we are willing to take risks and that there is a sense of curiosity and openness and empathy versus judgment. Mm. When we make fractures in relationship, we're willing to repair them. Mm. 
So there's some momentum on these issues. But for a long time, we have believed that personal issues stay at home. And then we bring the person to work to perform and to achieve. And it just doesn't work like that. As humans, we're not built for that. Mm. That's fascinating. So as you know, I, I'm leading the charge with a, a company called TellMeYourDreams.com. And they, they sponsor the show now. And, they, uh, and by they, I mean we, my partners and I, we spend a lot of energy staring at data like a trillion dollars lost in productivity because of poor mental health at yes. work. And two-thirds of, according to Gallup at least, two-thirds of the workforce, certainly in the United States, are in, disengaged. Uh, and even mm-hmm. 12% are actively disengaged, like like intentionally taking from businesses, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is troubling on several levels. But um, our working narrative, as we try to make sense of those data points, is that we think that people at work, let's assume goodwill. Let's assume that people, the not the 12% that are just takers, but the folks that are at work and they want to do a good job at work, but they find themselves disengaged, that a big reason why that might be the case is they're holding back to, to have some reserve to navigate the rest of their life. And if what you're saying is true, and it sounds really resonant to me, I think I'm hearing you say they might be holding back because work is not a a psychologically safe place to cathart or to live in an existential angst or anything like that. And they have to have some some holdback of energy so they can find other places to exhale. Is that a fair assertion? It is. And I would say that people are distracted in part. There are external detra- distractions that occur. And one of, one of my friends who's doing a ton of good work research and work on this, um, Kurt Steinhorst, his whole work has been around focus and attention with people and in the workplace. And he looks at it kind of from that external perspective. And yet at the same time, one of the things that I think is really cool is also digging down into the reality that people are so distracted on the inside that the reason why we turn on the screens and we go to social media is because we actually don't want to feel and face what happens in our body with emotion and with thoughts. So we distract. Hmm. And those reserves, those psychological reserves that you're talking about, we only have so much of those. So if I know I have to go back home and I have to deal with the stress of family or divorce or mental health issues, you're right, Dane, like we don't have those stores to use at work. Hmm. And and just the work that I've done with people one-on-one You know, there have been both freelancers, creatives, entrepreneurs, and leaders who sit in my office for months on end and don't make progress. And what we realize, the reason why they're not making progress is partly because they're afraid to make progress. Hmm. Because to get better, to pour in, to actually be excited about work is a very vulnerable process. When we've been hurt and wounded through trauma or other psychologically harmful relationships in our life, we learn that to open up means that we will get hurt. So for the workplace, for me to be excited about projects, for me to pour into a company, for me to trust that they actually take care of me and that I want to be there, those are all very vulnerable processes because when we did that before in relationship, we got hurt. And I think there is some safety there of trying to reserve um, some stores inside of ourselves because we are afraid to be hurt. 
Let's talk a little bit more about what you mean by trauma, because I gave my example of kind of my own personal trauma as a, as a young kid, but what are some other examples and how would you define trauma for folks that are listening? So on, on the most basic level, trauma is about disconnection. So it is a disconnection from ourself. It is a disconnection from others, and it is a disconnection from the work that we do. Now, to define it on what exactly it is, trauma is an event or a series of events that happens to us that we perceive as emotionally or physically harmful, and then it has lasting a lasting impact on us physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. And this also is an issue where I think that's trending at exponential rates. One of the largest studies that was ever done in 2016 on this issue, it looked at 69,000 people over 24 different countries. And you know what's crazy, Dane, is the U.S. was ranked the third highest out of these 24 countries. Wow. And they found that 82% of individuals had experienced a trauma in their lifetime. Over 30% had experienced four or more. Mm. So that that's significant. And when you think about creatives and entrepreneurs and freelancers, to have the stress of work or to have to produce in a work setting, it's not like you don't get a pass. It's actually more stressful in some ways to be in those settings. Mm. And, and and maybe later we can talk a little bit about how that impacts performance, but just to name it, that trauma doesn't have to be simply just a sexual assault or um, abuse or domestic violence or a loss of a parent. It can be things like running and starting a business. It can be a difficult labor and delivery. It can be a car accident. It can be being fired from a job. Hmm. So a lot of these smaller traumas, if I if I can say that gently, um, are considered trauma. Hmm. That's so helpful because I think a lot of folks, if they don't have one of the more like social ill connected ones, where it's just it feels like an everyday trauma, <laughs> or, and, right. not, and not a massive one, but there could still be a, a impact. Absolutely, and I think especially one that I see most frequently right now with the with the individuals that I work with is most of them will sit down and say, you know, I had, a, I had a very good childhood, nothing bad really happened to me. And then I ask them, well, what good things did happen? And they actually can't answer that. Hmm. They can define that they grew up with wealth and they had a, everything that their parents gave them. But when I ask them the question, so who comforted you when you were sad? Who was there for you to process when you felt lonely or afraid? And most of them don't have anybody, both in their family or both in their community, who is able to help them name emotion, process through that emotion, and help them find healthy outlets for that emotion. I think our society, um, coming from the previous generation, is emotional neglect or this inability to define, name, and process emotion is a major issue right now. And I believe that that is one of the reasons why we have such rates of depression. Because if you think about the word depression, depression means to depress or to push down. So if I have uncomfortable emotions rising up inside of me, but I don't know how to name them mm. or feel them or process them, I will inevitably push them down as a form of survival. Mm. And if I keep pushing those emotions down, they will turn into burnout. They will turn into depression. That's fascinating. So I, I think I'm making the connection in my mind, but I want you to articulate it directly. So how does that? How does trauma affect performance or productivity or 
those things that work. Let's, can we name it more, more specifically? Absolutely. And, you know, this has been really helpful that a lot of brain kind of neuroscience has come out recently because they can do brain scans on individuals and see which part of the brains light up and which part of the brain goes dormant. And for all of the skills and aspects that we would want freelancers to have, such as the ability to collaborate, the ability to communicate well, the ability to be focused and have attention, the ability to be creative, and the ability to be rational in our decision-making and balance in our emotions, every single one of those things that I just named, when trauma is present and it's unresolved, those parts of the brain are deactivated. They don't light up as much. Hmm. So what's interesting is we have this part of the brain called the insula, which is the insula is a part of our brain that deals with detecting bodily emotion and having empathy. So if my insula is lit up, I'll be able to perceive what you are feeling and what you're thinking, and I'll take in your body language. If, if I have trauma, that part of my brain is deactivated. And the part of the brain that deals with speech, the Broca's area, what we found is that, that our ability to communicate both what we think and feel, if we have unresolved trauma, that part of the brain is greatly limited. Take that further. So in the limiting of that, if, I, if I'm a boss and I have people working for me and I can just have a working assumption that people have been experienced some kind of trauma or at least a significant percentage of my people have experienced that and they're there to do a job, I'm paying them to do a job, they're not there to go to therapy at work, they're, they're there to perform mm-hmm. at work, but I know that something in their past, at least for a significant percentage of my people, there's things that are kind of limiting their capacity to to perform what do, what do you do about that like because <laughs> mm. because I, I think that there's it makes sense to me that there's reasons why the, these dynamics are in play but I'm, I'm wondering what could an employer do and and I should also add if they could do something is it going to be worth it like what would the payoff be a fully functioning like rigorous rigorously healthy workforce what kind of a difference do you think that could make in terms of productivity? Hmm. Well, you know, before I got into this mental health space and working with leaders and entrepreneurs, I was a personal trainer for 10 years and I specifically focused on the area of corporate wellness. So before I even got into working with businesses around emotional health, I was working with them on physical health and what we find around absenteeism attention and focus, sick days, high blood pressure, cholesterol, all of these different things that just suck money from a company. Mental health is no different than physical health. And what we find is that mental health issues, they strip a company of financial resources, both time and attention and collaboration. Turnover is higher. So the reality is that you can't escape that mental health rates are higher now than they have ever been especially amongst more of these freelancers um, and entrepreneurs. A study found that entrepreneurs have 2.6 times the rate of mental health issues compared to the general population. So they actually have six times the rate of ADHD and 11 times the rate of bipolar disorder. Now that's astronomical, right? Mm. That's huge. Mm. And if we don't address that, that's going to pull from the pockets of a company and of course, here's the reality that I faced in corporate wellness day. Everybody wants a return on investment, right? Mm. Everybody wants to know this program will help me achieve greater profit. 
And in some ways, yes, but mental health is difficult to measure in some aspects. Mm. So you have to measure it in a return on value, a return on how does this make my people experience our brand and does it help them feel safe and to be able to thrive? That's going to retain people. That's going to allow people to come together. Mm. So there's a little different shift that we have to take around mental health issues because it's different than blood work that you can take and you can see that someone has high cholesterol. You can't have a tissue sample to see if someone's depressed or lonely. Mm. But it's an energy. It's a, it's something that you feel and it's a culture that is developed. So I think if we could move away from return on investment a little bit and recognize that healthy people produce healthy companies. If we recognize that, then we will start pouring into the, both the emotional and the physical health of our people to know that when they are emotionally healthy, they will thrive. So I want to talk about the, the other side of the equation for a second. So let's say I'm working at a company and uh, ownership they're not as enlightened. They haven't had a chance to hang out with Andy Maurer and they are just chugging along and they're, they're really not concerned about my mental health. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's really more of a transactional relationship. But I, as an individual with agency, want to, to find a way to a greater sense of health. Give us some tips as we finish up around what would you say to a friend who works in that context on ways that they could find a healthier headspace? Mm. You know, I, I think a really helpful component of this is separating your sense of worth from your productivity, because the reality is not all leadership is healthy and not all companies are healthy. And people have to pay their bills and they have to be at companies that aren't psychologically informed. So your question is spot on, like, what are they supposed to do when the culture doesn't support them both emotionally and psychologically? And in reality, it's to step back and for those individuals to acknowledge I'm not an asset to be leveraged. I am a human to be loved. And first, I have to acknowledge to myself and give myself permission that I'm not an asset to be leveraged. And my worth is not defined by how I perform. So some people hustle for their worth. And I wonder what it would be like for these individuals to hustle from their worth, to do work outside of business in their communities, in their friendships, in the counseling office with a coach, so that when they come to that workplace, they can hustle from a place of worth. And it's not solely dependent upon how the organization is structured, but that they can have a sense of safety on the inside. They can do that through practicing mindfulness, which is basically observing their emotion and observing uh, depression and anxiety versus being critical of themselves. But it's really difficult because, you know, you can practice those things and you can learn to care for yourself and love yourself and give yourself compassion in these areas. But if you work in a toxic work environment, it's really difficult to thrive in those areas. And what I think is going to happen, Dane, honestly, is those company cultures that have been using power and pressure to get people to perform I'm hoping that over time, as new research comes out and as we see the impact of all this, those companies will actually, they'll lose their key employees. And those key employees will go to those companies who are willing to sit down and get to know their people and see them more than an asset, to see them as a person. And um, part of it is being with a company culture that supports where you want to be emotionally. 
And 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 the last thing is, you know, there's lots of tips and strategies, and people can reach out to me specifically if they want, you know, guidance on how to manage some of those things. But I was meeting with a guy, and he, and he said he has all of his people write a a two B statement, and that is, who do I want to be? And he doesn't believe in motivation. He doesn't believe in accountability. He believes that when people know who they want to be, action will take forth out of that. And I believe if someone can sit down and they can define who do I want to be as a person, who do I want to be as a spouse, and who do I want to be as an employee, action will come out of that. And then the question is, can this organization support me in who I want to be and thrive as an individual? And part of the work that you're doing, Dane, I love because you're helping in a large way organizations understand the value of their employees. And the reality is some companies won't get that. They won't understand that. And they'll balk at that. And that's okay. Because I think there are enough companies coming up and enough organizations who will value their people to be more than an asset. And that's actually the companies that I'm excited to work with. This was episode six, season five of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to the Habit Course from TellMeYourDreams.com. TMYD provides world-class coaching designed specifically for remote teams. Find out why Forbes magazine called TMYD's Habit Course the online course to master working from home. Sign up today at TellMeYourDreams.com.